Good morning again, and welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you. Chris just prayed that uh, you be rebuked. You heard him. So I'll get to that in a minute. This morning we have a topical message. We will have one next Sunday also, uh, Lord willing. If you have your Bibles, please open to the book of Jonah, the book of Jonah chapter 3. We will stand in a moment and we will take verses 1 through 4. The title of this morning's message is The Value of the Soul. Would you please stand as we take verses 1 through 4, the book of Jonah, chapter 3. And if you're not familiar with where it is, table of contents is the place to go first. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of Yahweh. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days... And none of us shall be overthrown. Please be seated. I'm going to treat this as though you know the story. I'm going to try not to bring up the fish. (laughs) This, as you would know if you're familiar with the story, is the second time Jonah was commanded to go to Nineveh, to leave Israel, to go outside of the promised land, away from the covenant people of God, to those Gentiles. And preach this message that God had given to him. He was to deliver the message, not create the message. The Hebrew prophets, they were accustomed to long-distance denunciation of surrounding kingdoms. But to go in person and to one of their capital cities, well, this was something new. To to, To pronounce the doom there on their turf. Uh, Isaiah wrote of judgments, for example, that would come to other nations, and so did Jeremiah, but they did that from Israel. Well, here the prophet is being told, I want you to take this message to them. Four times, God calls Nineveh that great city, great in population, it was great in need, great in suffering, as any large city is. Great in its possibilities. Only God saw those possibilities from a righteous standpoint. Human conditions, they affect God. He's not outside of the things that we suffer. He can take it, but he still feels it. It still hurts. He's not outside of what affects us. He's interested in humanity. The saved, in this case Jonah, and the lost in this case, Nineveh. None of this has changed. Again, God is not unemotional. All you need to do is read that 53rd chapter of Isaiah. One verse says, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. He's talking about the Son of God, who we know as the Christ, the Messiah. At the graveside of a friend, that short verse, Jesus wept. God is not outside of what we go through. God called Jonah to a definite task, and he gave him the reasons why he wanted to send him to Nineveh. Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, the first time God called the prophet, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Jonah's response, of course, well, I want it to stay before you, because I don't like them, and I don't want them saved. I want them to suffer your wrath. That was what Jonah was thinking. And instead of going to Nineveh on that first call, of course, he went as far as he could go in the other direction. And God chased him (laughs) because the prophet belonged to God. And God persuaded him and preserved the lesson for all of us. God saw what no one else could see, souls. We're going to talk about that. The souls in that city made it a great city in the eyes of God. 
I mean, cities are big, and we tend to want to get away from them, except if we are on vacation or something like that, because in those large cities, there are large problems. The souls in that city made that city great, and that was true in the days of Nineveh, and it's true today. It does not always play out the same way. Look at verse 3 in Jonah chapter 3, if you still have your Bibles there. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. This is the second time again, according to the word of Yahweh. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. It's a big place. Probably a million people or more in this city. We may get to some of that before we finish. Evangelism existed before the New Testament. God reaching out to lost sinners. Even the old saints understood this. Abraham prayed for a doomed Sodom and Gomorrah, and they never found out. They never found out that someone was interceding for them. But they had gone so far, they had become irretrievable. And the few people that were retrievable uh, got out, but they did not all survive, and they did not all survive well. Well... Here is Jonah preaching the shortest and greatest sermon on record. Now, I know you. Well, what about Jesus? Listen, Jesus didn't save a city preaching eight words. Jesus did, but he did it through Jonah. So let's kind of uh, walk it back a little bit and say, wait a minute. What's God doing here? An eight-word sermon. (laughs) You wish. (laughs) That's what he did. Verse 4 of Jonah chapter 3. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Can you imagine if you believed that was going to happen? Well, they did get to that place. This is not good. A Puritan from the 1600s, Thomas Watson, writes, Sinners may oppose God's ways, but not his wrath. You might not like what he's doing. You might not like his wrath, but you can't stop it. And we try to preach this. That's why the gospel is the good news. The antidote to the wrath of God is the Son, Jesus Christ. It took Jonah three days to repeatedly preach the same eight-word sermon. That's how big the city was. And there he paraded around the city as he passed the bazaars, as he the brothels, the gardens, the courts, the palaces, the barracks, the fishermen at the riverside. Almost one of those, you know, sandwich board sermons. The end is near. The only difference is God wrote this message for this man rather than taking it upon himself and writing what or preaching what he wanted to preach. It's the big challenge of all Christians when we share the gospel, when we teach the word. We have to get to that place. Lord, what do you want to say? Because if you don't tell me, then I'm going to come up with my own stuff. And that is not what we want. Again, verse 5, because here, nothing's fishy about this prophet at this point. The clock is ticking. Verse 5, so the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And it still wasn't over. That alone did not remove the sentence that was on them. But it was the beginning. It was the beginning of God doing something different with these people. And just like that, they heard the message preached by the preacher, like the outlaw on the cross, who met salvation at the buzzer. You know, that thief, the one did not repent, the other did. They both heard the same sermon, saw the same things. One got it, the other got it. He got it. The way that you don't want to get it. Jonah's sermon brought the great city of Nineveh literally, to its knees and, well, spiritually in that sense. The whole city, everybody together. See, this is what God saw in that great city. Their willingness to repent when faced with the truth. From the king upon his throne to the beggar on the dunghill, they got it. It was undeserved. It was unearned. But it was received. That's how salvation goes. That's how it is. There are those that think they're going to earn salvation. And what they're doing is they're building up against themselves a debt. 
that they can't repay. Paul talks about that in his Roman letter. You, you, you make yourself, you indebt yourself if you think you can earn favor with God. It's received. Salvation is received. We can earn rewards by serving and obeying, but not salvation. So we see God dealing with two hearts at this point. Well, we see the heart of God, of course, reaching out to those who otherwise would perish in their sins. We see God reaching to the impenitent unbelievers who then repented. Luke chapter 11, verse 32. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Again, he is the one that authored Jonah's message and the salvation of the Ninevites. Now, all this has got something to do with this. I haven't gotten that far yet. But here is our Lord Jesus Christ singling out this moment, this prophet, and this people. They repented. Repentance of the Ninevites. Look at verse 10, if you still have Jonah open. Chapter 3. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Well, the intended judgments of God, just like the promises of God, are conditional. They can be avoided as far as the judgments go, or they can be received as far as the promises go. The unloving messenger was the other heart. You have the Ninevites that repented, and then you have the messenger who was used by God to save their souls, but in his own heart, there was evil. There was racism. Jonah becomes now the center of God's attention. God doesn't just dispose of his prophets. Well, you know, he delivered my message. I don't need him anymore. God says, well, what we got here? What we have here is a prophet that needs correction. And, of course, the fourth chapter is about that correction. And Jonah is the one. We never would, we would have none of this had Jonah not told us the story, especially about his praying from inside the beast. So the unloving messenger has to be dealt with. This is something we are all susceptible to. I might say this again, and I should say it now. Not every need is a calling. There may be people you'd like to reach, or maybe people you know you should be uh, reaching out to, but you can't. It's not for you. Maybe there's a history there that won't allow it. So then someone else will come along. And God can use you to save someone else where maybe he couldn't use them. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, one of the great preachers, in uh, just one of the great preachers, period. God does not come to men to help them when they are saving themselves, but he comes to the rescue when they are damning themselves. Jonah is damning himself now. The people were. God sends the prophet. Now it's the prophet who's damning his own soul with this hatred. And God, again, in his patience, does not walk away from the prophet. He demonstrated that. He could have gotten someone else. He didn't have to get Jonah. When Jonah ran away from him, God could have said, that's it, I'll just find somebody else. But he does not do that. I like that part of the story. This is true of the souls of Nineveh and the soul of the prophet as well. But what is the soul? In a single word, me. I'm, that's me. It's you. Your soul is you. That's what is going on here. It's not part of the body, although the body serves it. The body is its vehicle. But when you receive your resurrected body, you will not be a disembodied spirit. In the book of Revelation, we find that they're wearing robes, those that are up in heaven. They're not disembodied. But the soul, something different. The clearest definition we have of the soul is discovered by analyzing what the Lord said. Mark chapter 8, and he does it twice. He does it in Matthew 16, he does it in Mark chapter 8. Now, if you're an unbeliever or not familiar with the scripture, references don't, cross-references may not register with you. But for the Christian, when a man preaches the word of God from a pulpit especially, 
He's got to back up what he's saying from the scripture. He's not coming up and saying, well, I think he is saying, thus says the Lord. And in Mark chapter 8, Jesus said, For what will a profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? All right, well, that's sort of circular in his reasoning. It doesn't tell me what a soul is. But then Jesus says it again, and Luke picks it up this time. Luke chapter 9, verse 25. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? Is himself. You see the replacement... For soul, Jesus says, himself. Same teaching. The soul is me. The himself that Jesus was referring to. The soul, therefore, is you. Yourself. The soul is the person that's not saved, as well as the person who is saved. It is that endless part of us. It is that part of us that will live forever. Where it will live has to be decided here and now, in this life. The soul is where the hopes are. The soul is where the ambitions are. The part of us that strives, that suffers, that prays, that loves, that sins, that repents. The soul is that part of us that can be saved. The soul is a big deal. It is the biggest thing about you. It is your life given to you by God. And everyone's got one. Even the person that is the most severely handicapped, the most special of needs, they have a soul. The only thing in man upon which God has written the word forever is the man's soul, not the body. It is not a part of our existence. It is our existence. This should change how we look at people if we need that change. Jonah didn't see it that way. Their souls were irrelevant to him. They had no value, no worth to him. But they did to God. If the soul is not important, then life is not important. There's a section in Samuel where David's army is at war with his uh, treacherous son Absalom. And on the battlefield, uh, Joab, David's commander, kills David's son Absalom and dispatches a messenger to tell the king he's dead. Well, it's done. Well, one of the messengers who was invested with David, he served David, he loved him, he didn't really know what was going on, it seems like, but he's, he's, he's got to go tell David anyway. And Joab says, well, you don't know what's going on, and he dispatches another person. But he runs too. He says, fine, go, go, go run. And he arrives first, the one that really doesn't have the story. He may have had it and didn't want to tell it. But anyway, we pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 29, and this is what he says, the part that has everything to do with if the soul is not important, then the then life is not important. He says, I saw a great tumult, but I did not know what it was about. That's his report to David. Is Absalom, my son, dead? I don't know. I saw commotion. I saw a lot of things happening. But I don't know what it was about. Is that all there is to life? Just a tumult in the tangled woods of the human experience? Is that all there is? As Shakespeare said, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Is that life? Many have gone to their graves thinking that. Many who are considered to be intellectuals have gone to their graves hoping that this was all that they were going to experience. And it never was for them to draw that conclusion. Certainly not. There is much more. The value and the worth of a soul. You can have value, but if someone doesn't think it's worth it, then what's the point of the value? They have to go together. No matter what you go through in this life, no matter what you may be going through or will be going through in this life, it still comes down to the salvation of souls. You are not excused because you are suffering. You are not excused from wanting to be used by God to reach lost souls to strengthen saved souls. 
It is a constant. Our Lord, when he rode into Jerusalem, riding on that lowly donkey as Savior King, knowing the cross was ahead of him, capable of calling down lightning on anyone at any time, he withheld, he restrained himself. Instead, he dies because of the value of the sinner's soul. It was worth it to him. So to put that in our language, it wasn't, well, I just got too much going on right now to be concerned about souls. I got to face this cross. Well, the purpose of the cross was souls because that's everything. God is emotional when it comes to salvation. I did not say he is emotionally driven. I I say he is emotional. It's not the same thing as emotionalism. He feels it. The soul is the great reality of man. It is the fact of you. That's easy to get. The hard part is when you're driving down the road to remember that the guy in the other car who has no signal fluid, (laughs) that he's a soul too. Well, let me rethink that. That is true. He is a soul too. The person you don't like, the person that, is your enemy. Now again, that does not mean that the wrong they do is somehow acceptable. That it's not vile and disgusting. It does not mean that you're the one that needs to be part of the process of reaching them. It does not mean you know if they're retrievable or not. That's why we are led by the Spirit of God. That's why we put a great emphasis. Going through the book of Acts, we find time and time again that the Lord's Holy Spirit is leading. If He's not leading, who is? If God is not influencing and leading you, then who is your Lord? And if he is Lord, he's going to behave as Lord. And the flesh will duke it out with the spirit to try to ensure that he remains Lord. I have another quote here from Thomas Watson. A man's greatest care should be for that place where he lives longest. Therefore, eternity should be in his scope. If the soul is me and it's going to live forever, where is it going to live? Well, the unbelievers aren't usually going to answer that question for a lot of reasons. I never thought of that too much. I thought I was a good enough guy. Looking back, if if the old me moved to the new me now, I'd sell my house and live somewhere else. I wouldn't want to live next to that guy. Christ has changed everything. Soul is the great reality of all men. That which makes man the object of revelation and redemption. God is not going to reveal his will to animals. He reveals them to men. You're not going to find, you know, the the, the first letter of the German shepherd. It's, it's going to be to men. We are distinct. We are ex- we, when God created man, he created an extraordinary being. God says, it says in the Bible, he did all things well. He said, let's make man in our own image to give him free will, give him the ability to choose, to love, to feel, to think, to reason on a level that was higher, far higher than any other animal. You find some people boasting, you know, that they can get a dog to understand 70 or 80 words. That's nothing compared to a human being. It's absolutely nothing. It's, it's an indication that there is a creator, but it does not put them on the same level. We are unlike anyone else in creation, and Satan attacks that soul. He attacks us. Because God put so much into us, it has enraged him. It is the seat of reason. And that reasoning of the soul says, where am I going to live forever? And that's why it is spiritual when you find a person who is otherwise, especially when they're highly intelligent, and they can't reason through eternity. They are finite. They're like Esau. They only see on the vertical plane, never uh, the horizontal plane, never the vertical. They don't look up. They think they do. 
And they reject whatever others have to say about the spiritual realm. It's not enough to be intelligent. You have to be spiritual. It's not enough to be spiritual. You've got to use your brains. Uh, If you're just spiritual, you'll end up being superstitious or falling for some lie from hell. But it's that combination. The ability to reason. Come, let us reason, God says. And the ability to see into the spiritual realm as, as, as Jacob saw uh, the, the ladder going into heaven and the traffic between the two. Surely God is in this place and I knew it not. How awesome is this place? The spiritual man was alive in Jacob. We don't read of that of Esau. We never read of the God of Esau. We read of the God of Jacob because Esau was strong enough to live this life without God. Nobody is strong enough to face God after this life without his salvation. Therefore, the soul matters. And the value of the soul is the most valuable thing that you have. It is you. And it is your pastor's responsibility to stress this, to make it clear from time to time in different ways. We're always hitting on it. This morning we happen to be emphasizing it, especially in this season. How many people go around at this time of the year saying Jesus is the reason for the season? For this season. Not the bunnies. Not the eggs. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first fruits that announces that because of his death and his resurrection, you will not have to face eternal death. You will be risen with him. The resurrection is a far higher ranked memorial season than Christmas could ever be. Christ, he was, it was the incarnation. To say he was born is, uh, requires a little explanation because he's always been from eternity past. He did not come into existence as we do when we are conceived in the womb. We come into existence. Christ is the Son eternal. He has, when, so when he was born, it was not his beginning. The resurrection. If you take Christmas away, Christianity really loses nothing. If you take the resurrection away, we lose everything. This is our season. But we don't emphasize it. Why not? Why when we see people at Christmas time doing things that uh, push Jesus out of the way, we are vocal. Jesus is the reason. When it's this one. This is the one. Luke chapter 22, verse 19 Speaking of Jesus, he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. That's you. What is you? Your soul, your existence, who you are. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember me in my death. That's what he's saying. That's why on Resurrection Sunday, we have communion. It is a direct connection. It is a memorial service that includes not only the death But the victory, the death of Christ, is life to sinners. This is a big deal. This is news. Jesus said, remember my death? It was on your behalf. And why is that? Because I love you. You know, you can tell a child over and over, I love you. Mom loves you. Dad loves you. After a while, is it registering with them as in their formative years? I mean, later on, it registers most of the time, many times. Sometimes, unfortunately, there's a fight for it. But does it register when someone says, I love you, and they mean it? And you should know they mean it, or not. Again, read Isaiah 53. Because we would all be toasting toasting to a roasting if it weren't for Jesus Christ. In his cross. And hopefully, when I preach, I preach things that are useful to God and men. That God can use. I can benefit people. Because that's what Christ did and does. To strengthen the saved and to save the lost. Because they are souls. And sometimes it appears that we're more mindful of the spiritual world of the believer that we are around than we are around the unbeliever. 
And I think that it should be no change. Uh, the, the temperature, the environment stays the same. We're dealing with souls in the presence of the maker of heaven and earth. And not, uh, you know, in studying the Bible, mere knowledge can make the heart indifferent. Just learning things. You know, you know uh, Paul said, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, he said that about those who are up to no good. But there are elements of that that apply to all, all of us if we're not careful. To just have another Bible study. To just constantly be taking in, when do you digest it? It is just, I mean, the word of God is compared to food. Ezekiel and John were told, take the book, eat it. Consume it, digest it. And if you don't, you're always learning. But you're never really coming into the knowledge. You never really become useful. It's all about you. There's nothing flowing out of you. You, know, you can develop almost a paranoia. I'm not learning anything. I didn't get anything out of that Bible message. Because it's all about you. When it should be about God. But with anointed biblical teaching, the gap closes. Now you've got something more. Something that influences the heart. That moves the soul. And like anything else, the value is determined by how much someone, someone is willing to pay for it. How much are you willing to pay to serve Christ? Or how much was Christ willing to pay to save us? We are supposed to be the ones that think these things through. We may not have the answers, but in pursuit of the answer, there is development. There is spiritual development that you would otherwise never get, that a goat never gets, but you can get it. For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. They belong to God, the possessive apostrophe on that God. You were bought at a price. Yeah, because man sold the kingdom, his dominion. He sold it to Satan and he has ended up on the auction block. And God bought him back at Calvary, at Golgotha, the place of the skull. It was a violent exchange. God said, I'll pay for it, and I'll have others suffer with me to help gain more. That's why Christians suffer. That's why Paul suffered. That's why Paul encouraged the Christians, you must enter the kingdom. There's going to be suffering. God is deputizing you, and you're going to experience what he experienced. Don't be surprised when bad things happen to good people. The world is cursed. Reigns on the just and the unjust. But what are you going to do with it? That's what it comes down to. People are watching. People are watching you in the workplace. Once you say you're a Christian, it's easy to prove. Just show up to work drunk. Find out how many Christians, how many, not Christians, how many unbelievers were shocked at your behavior and will hold you accountable to your confession, and they would be right. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers. There's a sacred cow, incidentally. The traditions of your fathers. There's something that they put an emphasis on that God did not. But with the precious blood of Christ, that's what redeemed us. The precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Redeemed from the slave block mankind was sold to back in the Garden of Eden. The Bible starts in a garden. It ends in a city. In the New Jerusalem is a city. These are things for us to not dismiss. Proof is everywhere. And only those who don't want Jesus to be Christ, they miss it. But many of them don't want Jesus to be the Christ because their understanding of who Jesus is is warped. And unfortunately, many times that twisted view of Christ is because of people who claim Christ. I, I did not want to become a Christian before I became a Christian because of Christians. It's a kooky behavior. I think that God, that can't be God. God cannot want that. I don't want that God if that's what he wants. And boy, was I shocked to find out that wasn't what he wanted. And just because someone says, I'm a Christian, is not, okay, the deal is that's done. Really? 
Are you a Bible-believing Christian? Are you a self-willed Bible-believing Christian? Are you an emotionally driven as opposed to a spirit-led Christian? Do you just do what you feel because you got the spirit, brother? Or do you listen to precept upon precept, line upon line, as we are commanded to do throughout the scripture? We are left here, sharing in the sorrows of life in this cursed world, to help those who are ignorant about Christ, that is God, and themselves before the holy God. Jonathan Edwards was a very intellectual Christian preacher and theologian. I don't agree with his much of his theology, but I don't dispute that he was very much in love with God. And he preached a sermon that I think is an overrated sermon, but not the title. I think the title is wonderful. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, how do you mean that? Do you mean that uh, you have this picture of God having sinners in his hands? He's about to squash them? Or do you mean that they're in his hands and he's trying to reach them by sending a Jonah to a Nineveh? Well, how's the world going to learn these things? We're left here to make it clearer to them. To help the ignorant not be so ignorant. To stand against the devil's work. And against his captives, because his captives do his work. Ezekiel chapter 13, Therefore thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I am against your magic charms by which you hunt souls. They are like birds. I would tear them from your arms and let the souls go. The souls you hunt like birds. You see, the souls, the people, they're real people, just like me. We tend to watch other people suffer and think, well, that's them, and we're just not part of this. And that is, of course, not the whole story. And you may not feel worth much to God. You may not feel worth much to other people. You may not feel worth much to yourself. Satan is messing with your head. When Peter first saw one of the miracles of Christ, you know what he said? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter's response was, I'm not worth it. I'm not worthy. Well, John the Baptist, too. I'm not worthy to untie his shoes, but I ain't going anywhere. He is the Lord. And he shall baptize you with fire when the Holy Spirit comes. So here's Peter saying, depart from me. And the Lord's response was, he just ignored the statement. And he went on and made Peter part of his group. Changed his name. Gave him a new nature, a new identity. A hand-picked man. Peter, Peter was a thorn in the flesh of the intellectuals. He is to this day. Of those who think that they're, he was a dumb fisherman. Look, he doesn't even write well in the Greek if he writes at all in the Greek. And yet, this man has his name inscribed on the foundational stones of the new city at the gate. It is amazing what God will do with somebody who says, I'm not worthy. Because they're just telling the truth. None of us are worthy. Except... Except someone greater than us put a value on us and say, you are worth it. And the cross demonstrates that. And you, oh Christian, you better watch it. When you think that you're not worthy, Christ says, what are you talking about? You think I died for you for nothing? I need you to agree with me. No matter what you're going through, I need you to desire to go to Nineveh if I called you to go to Nineveh. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 5 Now that we are not that we are so <coughs> excuse me <clears throat> let's give that a second not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves but our sufficiency is from God Paul says look I don't have anything and whatever I but I do have things that God has given me I have nothing of my own but I have, he's, Paul said this about his theological upbringing. All the things he learned in school about, you know, theology. He says, I count them as dung. I got rid of all of them. I wiped the plate clean. I poured everything out so that Christ could refill me, could rewrite everything in me. If you were, just, just say you were raised a Mormon and you became a Christian. You know, the Mormons used to go out of their way to make sure people knew they weren't Christians. 
They recently have tried to reinvent themselves so people would say, okay, they are Christians, and it was just deceptive. That's why they've changed the name from Latter-day Saints, well, Latter-day Saints from Mormon, and then LDS even more. Anyway, uh, it, it's, it's all deceptive. But let's just say you came out of Mormonism. You would have to count as dung everything you learned in that place. It's all corrupted. It's not trustworthy. Even if it was right, it's not trustworthy because it's mingled. And so we come to Christ, and he teaches us his way. Not alone. He doesn't take us into the closet or out into the wilderness of Arabia. That's, that, that was in the days of Paul, for Paul, and that alone was not how Paul, Paul had other vehicles of learning also. He has instituted his church, a blood-bought assembly. And, when, you know, it's offensive when someone thinks that the church being blood-bought is only the universal church. It is the local church just as much, if not more, because that's where the contact is. That's where the rubber meets the road. Christ sends me to Nineveh's too, just like he did Jonah. I don't have to behave like Jonah. I can just go and deliver the message. Christianity is life with the Savior. It is not an experiment. This explains apostates. And most apostates, they become vicious, more so than a regular unbeliever, against the faith. I was um, reading and learning about uh, the uh, Icelandic people being uh, the Ottomans coming and stealing them, you know, raiding their villages and enslaving them. And one of the survivors writes that the apostates, the Icelandic or Christians from other places too, that capitulated, that renounced their faith to save their souls, were the worst persecutors that they faced amongst the Ottomans. And that is a fact. Well, how does a person become an apostate? What is an apostate? Well, someone who was in the faith, and then they rejected the faith. Because they were experimenting. Well, let's see if this Christianity will work. Let's see if God will heal this. Let's see if God will do this. And when they find out after a long haul that it is a fight, it is a knockdown, drag-out fight, they don't want it anymore. They reject it as false. Why? Because, again, to them, Christianity was not life. It was an experiment. They weren't loving what he loves, Christ, that is. They weren't loving what Christ loves, wanting what Christ wants. A.W. Tozier says this, speaking of our personal Ninevehs, real Christianity has never been a hothouse plant. How can you not love the guy who's a genius when to say things like that? We're not you saved so we can be sheltered inside of a hothouse. We're supposed to be out, growing amongst the thorns, as it says in Song of Solomon, like a lily among thorns, so is my beloved. Jonah was sent to Nineveh, not Babylon. There's so many other places he could have been sent. God chose Nineveh. And God is to choose where you go also. You have no right to choose what church you go to without God. You have no right to make decisions, spiritual decisions, without God. He is Lord. We all tend to lose some of this because so many things hit us, but we regroup. We get back. And I find that a great many Christians, they get it without even being able to articulate it. I know a, a bunch of you, if not all of you here this morning that I know, you get, you get this. And now we want to keep it and make it do more. And, and if we could see people more as souls than bodies, if we could see them more as souls than those who are offensive, I think that would change things for us. Remember, because of sin, man is either in a state of ruin or redemption. There's no other place. You're either right with God or you're not, spiritually, your soul. You, who you are, not into the deeds and things we get tangled up with. Every news headline preaches the doctrine of sin. And they, they're quite gleeful about this. I mean, why don't we want to watch the news? Because it just all drags you down. They don't, they don't tell you things like, you know, hey, Rick had another birthday. He made another one. Let's rejoice. It's always something bad. 
um, as the saying goes, nobody wants to hear that the plane landed safely. Oh, yeah, I do. I wouldn't mind that. A statistic every day is how many planes landed safely. The, uh, to deny the sin in mankind is to go to the beach and ask, where's the sea? It is just blindness and stupidity mingled into to, to, to one thing. And we, again, are entrusted to address these things, as was Jonah, but and we run from it. For Jonah, it was racism. He didn't want the Ninevites saved. They weren't Jewish people. They weren't covenant. That race of people needed to go to hell. For us, it could be something else. I'm too busy. I have too many family things going on. Or I got too many church things going on. I mean, it could just be a whole bunch of things. And and God expects us to figure this out, to notice them, do something about it. I don't know. When When I read the Bible for the first time, it's just this presence of Jesus Christ was there. And that presence said to me, nobody can think this stuff up. Nobody can make this up. There's nothing like this anywhere else. You've read other stuff. Have you found anything that has come close? I had not. And so I, I surrendered. Do we tell lost souls of our world that they have the same power to repent as we do. I don't know, is that lost? Do we lose that? To tell somebody, look, I don't know what you got going on. You could be fighting with uh, some sort of an addiction. You could be fighting depression. You could be fighting unemployment. You could be fighting health issues. Still the soul is the centerpiece of it all. And what are you doing with it? Are you going to wallow in what Satan is doing to you? Are you going to fight back? I'll help you. I'll fight with you. It's not going to be easy. That's why it's a fight. All fights are difficult. In fact, we watch a boxing match. If the guy gets knocked down at the first punch, we say, that wasn't a fight. (laughs) But when it's knocked down, drag out, it's something else. Do we tell them the same power to repent is available and save them as Jonah was saved from the jaws of hell, as Nineveh from the wrath of God? We're to make them think about their eternal state. And I'm almost done. Mark chapter 8, verse 37. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, a lot of people give stuff because they're just spiritually ignorant. Some are just evil. There are evil people. We ought to understand that. We're not to be naive. There are evil people. And in their evil state, there's nothing we can do but war against them. Protect ourselves against them. Going around trying to put a, a, you know, a ribbon on a, a trash can and saying, oh, there's no longer trash is naive and stupid and not true. We ought to be careful. Wise as serpents, harmless as doves. What if God never let us repent? I get scared just when I type that, I got scared. What if God says, you're done. There's no heaven for you. Just live through this difficult life and perish. But he does not. Jonah, again, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the word of Yahweh came to Jonah a second time. That's God. He gives us another chance. That is grace. Do we do that? Or are we too legalistic and high-minded? I hope not. There are things that God will only give in answer to prayer. There are some things he will not give unless you ask for it. Well, James said you, 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 have, you don't have because you... You don't ask. And when you ask, you ask amiss. Well, that's in the story of Jonah. Salvation is one of them. Jonah was trapped in the beast. What would have happened if he never made that prayer that was found in Jonah chapter 2? Here we read it in verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to Yahweh his God from the fish's belly. Verse 10. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it puked Jonah out on the dry land. What What would have happened if he never prayed? The greatest miracle in the book of Jonah is not the fish. It's that a whole city repented. They're not even close. The fish is it's, it's, it's amateur work compared. I mean, it's the work of God. But the souls, it wasn't about the animal. And many people come to the book of Jonah and they thought, how could he breathe in that thing? What was he wearing? It's a miracle, doofus. That's what the miracle does. You can't explain it. They do that with the virgin birth. How can a virgin? It's a miracle. 
Look up into the sky. You tell me if that the fact that the moon doesn't come smashing into San Francisco, because it would only destroy San Francisco. Never mind. That's a miracle. So without prayer, even the prophet would have perished. Is that not part of the story in chapter 2? Without prayer, even the man of God would have perished. God's grace knows the worst about us. And yet he persists. He comes after us like he did Jonah. He knew Jonah was going to run. He was waiting for him. I close with this verse, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 9. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Our Father, may we uh, not be so familiar with the basics of our faith that they don't move us. We're no longer moved by just the definition of the soul. May you always find us eager to requalify, to go again to the range and to qualify again, to make sure that the skills don't perish, to remain fresh. Lord, as I've been speaking this morning, I'm sure there's someone, at least one, maybe more, who just don't, just don't get it. They come to church, and the only time they really open their Bibles or hear the word preached, it's a hard way to live. It is my prayer this morning that those who come to church come to church because they're coming to you. They want your Holy Spirit to move them in some way, anyway. They want to hear from you, be it through your vessel, be it through your invisible yet clearly heard voice. They want to hear you. Now, Father, we who believe and know these things, may we be stronger. May we not be afraid of some Nineveh in our life, but may we be ready. If you've never opened your heart to Christ, you are like the Ninevites before they repented. You are about to be overthrown. When you die, you will be overthrown. You will be destroyed. Your soul will continue, but it will be better for you to not have been born. You have no choice in being born into this life, but you have every choice into being born again into the image of God, friendship with God, but you've got to make the prayer. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I break your commandments. And I ask you to forgive me because there's no one else who is powerful enough to not hold me accountable for my wrong. There's no one else who died for me on the cross to take my punishment. And I come to you and to no one else and I ask you to forgive me and from this day forward to be not only my Savior, the Savior from judgment, but the ruler over my life. Now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, may they not be ashamed of it. May they be eager to grow in knowledge and the grace of Jesus Christ. And we commit these things to your hands in Jesus' name. Amen.